Hello, and welcome back to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, joined by Bobby Mixup. Bobby, how are you? I'm I'm great, Andrew. Hey, thanks, thanks. Good to see you. It's been a week. It's it's been a week. Uh, we have corresponded, but not seen each other face. Actually, we did see each other face to face once or once or twice, but not quite <laughs> as intimately as this. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate it when I'm unloading the dishwasher at 6 a.m. Central Time in the United States when you give me a, a call from the city square in Krakow, Poland. It, it uh, makes me feel good about being alive. Yeah, no, no, I, I thought it was actually kind of appropriate. I thought, you know, heck, uh, what better place to be than to call you at 6 a.m. in the morning? So it was it was a very humane experience. I you know sometimes when you're do, you're doing these menial tasks in in you know the the wonderland of suburbia in America, you you kind of feel a little you might feel a little disconnected from from the the reality that you that you inhabit in the old world. So I well, really appreciate yeah, it. I I yeah, I don't want to like, you know, make anyone jealous here. It's just, you know, just here because of the wife, you know. Well, and yeah. Well, we hope our five five minutes from the from the Rinnick, so that's the main square. And you know, when I have to go buy a water or something, the grocery store, the cheapest grocery store is actually in the Rinnick. So it's a nice excuse for me to go and venture around the city. Wow! Imagine that that there's a grocery store like right there in this walkable space where you know there's full of. Yeah historical buildings and things what a what Piedronka. a joy. so what, Piedronka, what's you, that? yeah you'll see like they got Piedronkas all over Poland and these little ladybugs with the smiley face on them mm. um so they're seen as actually kind of like um kind of like Aldi in America but okay. they have Aldi it's basically Piedronka like an Aldi right in the one of the nicest spots in Europe so nice. I hear that European Aldis, by the way, are better than American Aldis. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, much better. They also have like a different logo too. Hmm. All right. Well, here we are. Uh, exciting times for us, Bobby, because this is our second podcast, and by now we have launched our project. We have uh, sent our our listeners will have heard our first podcast. Maybe we have some new listeners today. Welcome. Uh, we've sent out our, we're calling it kind of a manifesto, I think, Bobby, kind of our, our yeah. we're laying out some principles, some of the, some of the things that undergird what we're, what we're trying to do, uh, why we're doing this in the first place. And we're beginning to roll out more articles to build our, our base of followers, to get people to sign up to our email list and to engage with the work that we're doing. So I'm, I'm very encouraged that we're, we're on a roll now. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it. And it's really just, yeah, it's nice to see that things are finally going. Yeah, this has been, as we said in last week's podcast, just to recap, this has kind of been a dream of ours for a while. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we're very optimistic, I suppose. We're not natural optimists, I guess, either one of us, but I guess we could say we're hopeful, but also maybe a bit optimistic that the project that we envision is something that will interest people. So, so far, so good, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. It's always, uh, yeah. Pessimists with, a with hopefully with some optim with hope. Well, maybe we don't have to be all one or the other. We can, we can be a bit of both depending on the circumstances, but Hey, I was just in Florida, uh, my home state of Florida. I live in Texas now, of course, as you know, but I was invited to come speak at a parish in Florida. I know I, I know the priest at this this uh, big kind of suburban parish in Orlando, Florida. So I was just there yesterday and the day before, and I spoke to these people. And one of the things that I said that I thought you might be interested in, Bobby, and I don't remember if I've ever told you this, but the first cathedral that I was ever in, the first Catholic cathedral that I ever set foot in, to my knowledge anyway, was the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Reims, in France, R-E-I-M-S, Reims, which is in the heart of Champagne country. And it's it was a weird circumstance that that was the first cathedral that I ever set foot in. You know this, Bobby, I think, but uh, maybe our listeners don't. But my father lived in Italy in the early 90s. He was a naval officer, and my parents were divorced. And in 1994, my sister and I, my middle sister and I, 
went by ourselves to Europe to visit my father. And that was the first time that I went to Europe. I had had one year of French at that point in eighth grade. And um, I believe, or maybe, yeah, that's right. I had I'd finished eighth grade. I had one year of French. So I had a little bit of exposure to kind of European culture and one European language and went to went to Europe. We got in the car where my dad lived in Italy and we drove straight to France. That was where he wanted to take us first when we got there. And we drove all the way up to Champagne country and we went to Reims Cathedral. And it was the first cathedral I ever went into as a 14 year old. And to this day, the memory of that experience sticks with me. And it really only has occurred to me in the last few years, just how meaningful it was that at that formative time in my life, here I was this new world young man in the old world, not at all a Catholic, experiencing this truly transcendent space. So um, I was talking about this. And after I finished my, my talk, this lady came up to me with some kind of foreign accent. And she said, you must keep talking about this, like Europe. You must talk about Europe. I hadn't told her anything, Bobby, about our project really? at all. Yeah. And I said, I said, well, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm so so enthusiastic about Europe and Europe's role as kind of the headquarters, as it were, of, of, of Christian civilization. And she said, I am from Spain and I've been living in America for a very long time, but um, it, it is so important. And I, I, I really, I need to, I, I think everyone needs to hear more about the experiences of people who go to Europe and who are from there or who appreciate the, the treasures of, of, uh, what's on offer there. And I just was shaking my head in disbelief the entire time. I just couldn't believe right at this moment that you and I are embarking on this new endeavor that I, I didn't mention wow. it or anything. It was just sort of, I guess, coming through and the other things that I was saying, and this lady singled out what I said and, and was excited. So I hope other people uh, feel the same way. Oh, yeah. I'm, and I like to share my experience too, of, of actually being in Spain for six months. And that was such a transformative event for me um, I went to Portugal. I think Andrew, maybe we talked about this before in the last podcast. Maybe, maybe we didn't. But going to Portugal and finally seeing kind of the lived faith during Holy Week was just transformative for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not like you know fetishizing Europe at all, but experience something there and you wanting it, to, wanting to bring that back to America. I mean, my dad. My dad is a huge. Um, I mean, my dad is like Rick Steves in many ways. Okay. Just, you know, I think his politics are a bit different, but uh, <laughs> my dad kind of wishes he was Rick Steves. He bought all those books, but he, uh, he, from a young age, he wanted to get to Europe. And I remember, I forget how old I was when, well, my first trip to Europe, I think was when I went to Spain, but I went back, I went back with him. Um, just to see a couple of those places, but he wants to get back all the time. And it's precisely because there's like, he loves the history, just the locations and all the history. It's, but it's like meaningful, you know? And so like, uh, I think there's something like meaningfulness and beauty and goodness all wrapped up in one in Europe. So that's great to hear, Andrew. And that's great to hear. Yeah, and I think some of what you're what you're just articulating is is what our our followers are going to find if they dig into our kind of manifesto. I, I think uh, you know this message of like meaning, depth, uh, this kind of wellspring of hope is something that we want to point to over and over again as located in in Europe and in a in a continent and in a people who almost nowadays like unconsciously still bear these indelible marks of the faith. Um, that have been very good uh, for the whole world. So we really want to emphasize that. Absolutely. Well, today, Bobby, we're we're going to begin digging in little by little here to different documents, and you know, our listeners, I hope, will appreciate kind of a free, uh, kind of a free flowing conversational style that you and I want to have together, where we certainly want to dig into certain documents and and other resources, but we also just kind of want to see where the discussion leads us as we continue to kind of unpack together this whole project of hope and Europe 
where we're thinking about mystery, we're thinking about Mary, we're, you know, we're thinking about beauty, all of these, all of these concepts. Those are kind of some of our, I think those are our big five, aren't they? And, and let me just say something about why I included Mary in this, because uh, first of all, every single document that we're like inspired by, like Space Salvi, Ecclesia in Europa, um, and you um and also the patron Peggy, um so many of them come, actually, Space Salvi ends with Mary as the model of hope. Uh, Ecclesia in Europa ends with Mary. And then the great, like the great, uh, let's say, Peggy, who saw Europe on the brink of disaster, World War I, literally died, uh, I think, at the very beginning. I got a, a, a bullet right through his heart at the beginning of World War I. Um, he said that Our Lady saved me from despair. And so I thought, you know, heck. And then just look at France. France kind of blossoms in the Middle Ages with the great cathedrals to Our Lady. And mm -hmm. Poland, I mean, the center of Poland is Jasna Gora, um, in which you have the, the Black Madonna and just the whole culture being centered around her. Um, yeah. We can think of so many other Catholic cultures, but Mary, I felt like, absolutely has to be at the center of this. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting too, Bobby? I've been I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. I know I, probably you have already for a long time, but it occurred to me this past summer when there was a there was a big pilgrimage in France, and you know, I, right now I just saw in the news it's mid October as we record this. It's the uh, pilgrimage time to Fatima. And there's like humongous crowds, huge crowds. And it just really seems to me that Mary is, you know, I mean, it was Mary's appearance, right, in in Fatima that was kind of this, I really believe this kind of pivotal moment in, in the history of the West, like right during World War One, like right when kind of the West is sort of facing this choice, which I think ultimately we've kind of chosen wrongly. But um, but Our Lady really is this this figure who I think is, is this symbol of hope, and particularly as we're we're attaching that to Europe and European society, that to this day, people, even people who aren't like super Catholic or religious, are drawn to her, and they're drawn to places where she has appeared, and and drawn to kind of the the hope that she that she exudes. Yeah, you know, I'll always remember um, when I was working for Word on Fire. This was like years ago, back in two thousand ten. Uh, went with uh, Bishop, that then Father Barron, um, to EWTN, and we were on the bus. I remember the bus driver. He was like this uh, former hippie, old hippie. Um, he said he was a drummer out in L.A., but I guess he didn't. He never made it. Um, so he was the bus driver for EWTN, and he wanted to tell me his story. I was just kind of hanging out in the front of the bus as we were making our way into, I think that was Birmingham, Alabama. And I asked him, so, cause he said, Oh, I, I, you know, I'm kind of a, a late convert to Catholicism. So, so I said, like, well, what, what, how did you come into Catholicism? <laughs> um, and he said that he was a school bus driver before and some, somebody left the rosary on the floor of the bus. And he felt like, you know what? It was like a plastic rosary. He said, I, I shouldn't throw this thing out. Maybe I'll just keep it here. Like he didn't really even know what it was, but he put it up at the front of the bus. And he said, gradually he felt like he looked up finally what this thing was next to him. And he felt like there was some, I guess he was going through some struggle in his life and he felt that like that the rosary and then Mary was having some kind of a effect on him. And then he eventually, eventually came into full communion with the Catholic Church. Um, I think he had probably like a Baptist background, but he it was like all about Mary for this guy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I always keep that in mind. But yeah, Mary, Mary has that has that, you know, impact on people. I think she's a wonderful way into the church for so many people. I've heard that story from so many people too. And I think a way uh, she's a real figure to reinvigorate the church also. So yeah, it's no accident, as you say, that she, she appears um, in these, some of these documents that are going to be yeah. real guiding lights for us in our project. 
particularly some of the work of Pope Benedict, well, St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. And on that note, we're going to talk about one of Pope Benedict XVI's, um, I guess it's actually a, a talk or a speech, yeah. uh, more than a document per se, but it is his meeting with artists, which was an address that Pope Benedict XVI gave at the Sistine Chapel on November 21st, 2009. I think this talk is just fantastic. And yeah. I really want to recommend it to everybody. So let's dig into it, Bobby. Um, you're the one who suggested yeah. that we look at this today. What What was on your mind when you pitched it well, to me and thought we ought to talk about it? Well, in all honesty, I mean, I've, I've always known about the letter of uh, to artists by, you know, St. Uh, John Paul II. That was written like 10 years before this uh, meeting with artists. Um, um, and so I thought... Pope Benedict has to have something on on beauty or some some talk that he gave to artists. So I literally just Googled. Uh, I literally just Googled Pope Benedict the Sixteenth plus artists, um, and I I found this. And then I'm like, oh wait a minute here. And he even mentions that this is ten years later. Um, but like most things, I like Pope. I I absolutely love. John Paul II's letter to artists. I mean, it's it's great, but Pope Benedict XVI just knocks this out of the park. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, okay, we should probably, I told Andrew, we should talk about this. Uh, yeah. It's just so good. And I'm sure most people haven't heard about it. I admit I had never heard of it. And that's it's crazy that I hadn't because I have used St. John Paul II's letter to artists in some of my own writing. I, I put it in... Uh, an article that I wrote about Catholicism and film. And it's actually, it features in the preface to, uh, or the introductory chapter to the book that I co-authored with uh, David Baird and uh, Father Michael Ward that's coming out this fall about the Vatican film list. Yeah. It, it's such a wonderful piece of writing from John Paul II. I mean, and one of the most memorable things in it is something that Pope Benedict quotes, the 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 notion that the church needs artists and artists need the church. You know, this kind of like the, this reciprocal relationship that art and the church experiences with each other, which is, I think when John Paul II said that, I, I'm not really sure nowadays if we understand kind of, and this was still the late nineties, it's not that long ago, but how in some ways revolutionary that was that in the modern era, John Paul II is saying that, you know, like we're not, you know, we're not in Christendom where, we, you know, the, the greatest art is being produced by people who are avowedly Catholic or Christian, right? Yeah. Um, and so Pope Benedict the Sixteenth definitely carries forward the same idea from John Paul II in his discourse that doesn't even presume, right, that the art, the great art that could be edifying, that could be nourishing to people's souls is even coming from Christians, which is a really, I think, a really important thing that you and I have talked about many, many times. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways we can go about this, but just how tiresome sometimes like things, art that's being produced under the category of Christian or Catholic can be um, like, we just don't want to get ourselves backed into corners like that. Like, we, because, you know, truth is just kind of too big to, to be encapsulated in that way. So I'll throw it back to you. I know you have. No, no, I just, what was interesting too, is um, they keep referencing Paul the six mm -hmm. uh, address to artists. Um, but even before Paul VI, like around the time of the Vatican II, um, John XXIII uh, reached out. And I think we talked about this, Andrew, where he reached out to artists as well. And I think and one 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 uh, artist, part, uh, filmmaker, who is not very close to living the Christian thing, uh, uh, Paolo Pasolini, right? Um, yeah. About what, Marxist? Um, and, and many things besides that, but mm -hmm. he was inspired. He dedicates his gospel of St. Matthew movie to, um, I think John the 23rd, John the 23rd. Yeah. Now say what you will about that movie and the kind of like Marxist, uh, <laughs> themes that come up throughout it. But I think it's actually just such a wonderful film. Um, I mean, like it's, wonderfully shot it's like a passion play he uses the locals um i think mel gibson even shot the passion 
passion in the same town that Pasolini shot the gospel of St. Matthew in. Um, and this is somebody, I mean, like the music, the way he interweaves like kind of contemporary gospel music, soul music, African music, you have then Bach, you have and much more. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful film and mm-hmm. not made by, not made by um, practicing Catholic. So, but it's interesting too because John John Paul II t- talks about in his letter uh, the relation between the kind of moral life and the life of the artist, and there's a connection between the two. Um, and so, I thought that was interesting as well. But but anyways, it doesn't mean like the holiest person or around is going to be producing the most beautiful art. Mm-hmm. But maybe, 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 I don't know. Yeah. And, and well, so many different ways to go. Let, maybe here's a place that might be interesting to both of us. I love the part in this discourse where Pope Benedict XVI says, an essential function of genuine beauty, as emphasized by Plato, mm-hmm. Plato is going to be a major figure for us as well, of course, but emphasized by Plato is that it gives man a healthy shock. It draws him out of himself and reawakens him. That I think is a really important point. That you know, one of the one of the things that we're very concerned with is just the kind of de facto atheism or the or the kind of de facto godlessness or just you know just the kind of living amid various kind of quasi comfort, um, living busy lives that kind of keep us keep us just kind of keep everything kind of flattened out um and, and and in a strange way leaves no room for god even though we're actually all kind of bored mm-hmm. um but art truly beautiful things whether they are avowedly you know meant to edify or not can serve this function this shock function this wake up call function yeah. that is very good for the soul yeah, it's you know, truly erotic. I, yeah. I mean, it's it, mm. it, in ter- in the terms of like ecstatic. It brings you outside of yourself. Yeah, I've had this. I've had this this concern for some time. I remember there was a, a while ago there was a commentator, a Catholic commentator, who this comes up from time to time. You know, who who wants to affirm the importance of art. You know, but also also kind of wants to be sure that things kind of, you know, that you categorize things the right way, that you're, that you're careful about, you know, oh, now that's valuable, but it has some objectionable content and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I have to admit, for the most part, I'm not really that interested in that, in that way of approaching art. I I certainly think that there are things that, that we ought to avoid. There's no doubt about it. But here's the the funny thing is like there's so much stuff that we encounter that we whether we're trying to avoid it or or not, that is going to get stick, stuck in our heads and is going to have an effect on us. And so the question is, is not so much like what to oh, it's not always what to avoid, but rather like what to do with it once once you once you've encountered it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so for my money, I um you know, I, I think of, yeah, I think your example of Pasolini was was really good. And there are just so many others besides. I mean, you know how much I admire, for example, a filmmaker like Lars von Trier, who has made some like truly appalling things and who has who is actually a Catholic, but who now I think doesn't really identify in that way or whatever. Um, but for my money, I mean, even with disturbing content and not all of his films, but even with disturbing content, I mean, that does so much more for my soul than most things that are, are on offer, you know. Do you think it's, there's like some depth there that is somewhat missing in some of the films that are maybe more explicitly um, Catholic or? Totally. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, or, or certainly just like what's available in the mainstream, you know, and you know, take someone like uh, Ingmar Bergman, who whose father was a Lutheran pastor, and he was he's called himself an atheist. But I mean, every single one of his films basically has something to do with the big questions and and the the deep things, the mysteries. 
Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I would recommend pretty much any of it, maybe not Cries and Whispers, but just about any of his other movies I would recommend. Um, so I don't know, going, going down, going off on a tangent there, there's so much more to talk about, about Benedict the 16th, um, document, but as a film guy, that, that sort of thing definitely pops into my mind. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, Andrew, you're reading, um, Tarkovsky's diaries right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think that really, really, really good filmmaking. I mean, it kind of teaches one like how to look, how to contemplate. Um, and most of these artists, I like a lot of them just have an eye. I mean, their eye for beauty inevitably leads you into some form of, of, of transcendence. It in- inevitably leads you to God, ultimately. It's like, and even when they show something, something that's that's grotesque on the film, you kind of see it as, as just that. I mean, or mm-hmm. even something that may be like, um in a film that is like objectifying another that you could be like oh my god how dare they 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 show this scene you kind of see it for what it is um yeah and um i mean i'm trying to think of an example here uh well you remember in the great beauty paolo sorrentino's movie that the way that he plays with the concept of beauty is really really interesting in there right so it begins with this party with all of these like fancy glamorous people and, (laughs) and, and, and Jet lives in this like beautiful apartment overlooking the Coliseum. And he lives this like very fancy life, but he's like, his soul is very ugly, you know? And everybody's jumping in the background and then it just goes down and he's just there and just having some kind of, you know, mystical experience on the dance floor. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's like time stops or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then ultimately in the movie, he, his, like, he is contrasted to some degree or his life is contrasted with that, like, really kind of deformed old nun who, like, climbs up the steps, you know, and, um, he said I mean, he crucified Christ when, you know, you know what he, what his great epiphany of beauty is. Um, yeah. but there is something beautiful, like, about, yeah. you know, what he experienced as well. I mean, so. absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, uh, all of our listeners should go and watch that movie. In fact, and and uh, shameless promotion, but I made a video when I was when we were still at Word on Fire, uh, commenting on that on that film along with Life Is Beautiful by Roberto Benigni and uh, Stealing Beauty by um, Bertolucci. So three Italians. Something about the Italians. I mean, the mm-hmm. Italians just have a have an eye. Um, yeah. Forget the name of the 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 film critic, but I think I heard rumors that uh, Tarantino is making a movie about um, about this um, female film critic uh, who was popular in the seventies, and mm. I forget her name, but she she got in like the big in big trouble because she liked you know the last tango, and you know she also um, was a huge fan of. I forget what else, but she loved Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, um, and but she said that the Italians just have this 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 eye for beauty. It just she's mm-hmm. like it must be in the blood or something. Um, and you just yeah. mentioned all these Italian great Italian filmmakers. Um, yeah. So, well, and you mentioned Tarkovsky before, and maybe that's a good transition to another one of my favorite things that's in this letter or yeah. this discourse, this, this speech from Pope Benedict, where he says, now he, here, he really, he really tricked me in this one part, because there's a part where he starts to talk about Dostoevsky. And th- so remember, this is a, a discourse about beauty, about art. So I thought for sure, he's going to give the quote, the famous quote, yeah, about, I was looking you know, for that will too. save the world, right? <laughs> yeah, beauty will save the world that we hear that all the time, like everybody loves to roll that roll that out. And for good reason, right? Yeah, yeah. But this part, this is actually what what Pope Benedict is interested in. He quotes Dostoevsky, who did not not that quote, but who said this: "Man can live without science. He can live without bread, but without beauty, he could no longer live because there would be no longer anything to do in the world. The whole secret is here. The whole of history is here." Now, when I read that, I mean what a what an what an awesome kind of what what an indictment of 
the the logic of the modern material world. Yeah, it, it's kind of a total inversion of the whole like what what's it called? I always forget Maslow's hierarchy. Is that what it's called? Yeah, where you know, kind of the you you have to like ascend to something like the appreciation of art. Like you got to be sure first of all you got enough to eat. Make sure you got some people in your life who are nice to you. You know, maybe you got a roof, you know, some kind of modest shelter over your head, whatever. And then, you know, then eventually you build your way up to like, oh, go to an art museum and take in the finer things. And Dostoevsky is saying the opposite. He's like, you can live without science. I mean, what a what a great. This is like the inversion, too, of Marxism, right? Yeah. I mean, it's because it's assuming that like, okay, well, we got to have all these other things met. Um, And then and then you'll have possibly some kind of art which is really just propaganda for <laughs> for marxism but right um yeah no no I, what andrew what do you think he means by the whole of history is here yeah um but also I don't like, know. There, would be no, there would no longer be anything to do to the uh oh because yeah to do to the world yeah do to the world um mm-hmm yeah, it's like everything and beauty is guiding every single action that we take. I mean, I um there's this one one book that I was reading, I think by um Jonathan Lears, I think. It's called The Radical Hope. Um, and it's about the um, I believe it's the Crow Indians, but the guy talks about uh, what winds up happening when they stop the rituals or when they actually stop the buffalo hunting, I believe it is. Um, they said um, history ended with that very activity, okay, because there was some kind of religious thing about it, but I'm sure it was wrapped up with the, the significance of that religious, um, you know, ritual and the uh, buffalo hunting was also uh, like the, the kind of the beauty that animated the tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once that was gone, there was really nothing nothing to do and also history the history of the tribe ended um but you look at all these great movements too in in like it, we were talking we we're talking about um kind of here in poland and you see all around you um in krakow at least um some of the young poland uh artwork by um, some artists in the young poland movement like Vishpansky and um, Mohoffer, I think is his name. Um, but they thought that through through beauty, in some ways, that was going to bring about this new this new uh, say the dawning of this new new age in Poland. History, Polish history, would go on. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something. Uh, it does seem to be like a kind of. Sp- an alternative and more spiritual account of history than what than what we hear i mean it you know the whole like end of history thing which obviously is ludicrous but you know that the idea that like history is this kind of like development of like you know sort of building of, of one innovation to another in terms of science but then also in terms of kind of ideas right like we're kind of like maturing in into you know these into these creatures that that you know are are going to get closer to perfection or something like that and uh you know I, it just doesn't seem like that's what dostoevsky thinks at all and um maybe those young poland guys too i was thinking even way further back something that really really fascinates me is the cave paintings cave painters like cavemen and stuff like that like have you ever seen werner herzog's film the cave of forgotten dreams no no i was going to show that to my class but i had a i didn't feel like coughing up 10 bucks just yeah (laughs) the rented but yeah i mean you look at the the primitive everything everything like yeah what is tell me more about that documentary though well i mean the crate i had learned so much watching that documentary i mean so there are these caves these these people lived the thirty thousand years ago there are these caves in france that were discovered kind of by accident in in the 1990s and um, they found these paintings and they're, they're absolutely incredible. I mean, you can hold up the light to them and they they look like they're sort of almost like movies. And the thing is, like people people think of cavemen, right? But you know that cavemen didn't live in caves. 
the caves were like their churches. I mean, the caves were like their cinemas. The caves were these places where they kind of expressed themselves on this like higher level. Yeah. And these were literally people who, who it seems like probably didn't meet the criteria of Maslow's hierarchy a lot of the time, or, or at least were struggling day in and day out to do that. But they had these caves. Or think about the Aborigines in Australia who were, you know, who lived for 50,000 years until they saw other human beings. Yeah. Um, and there's evidence in these caves in Australia, same in, in, in Chauvet in France, that the exact same paintings on the walls or on rocks and stuff like that were touched up 5,000 years apart, right? So it's like yeah. innovation is the enemy. Like what, what the goal is, is continuity, is this sort of like unbroken expression of yes. like the, the beauty of the people in these art forms. Yeah. Pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, and like, uh, yeah, innovation within the continuity too. Right, like, within the continuity. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it also too. Um, you think about you mentioned um, the kind of inversion of um, uh, Maslow's hierarchy, but uh, I was because uh, I had to teach my year seven class. It's like they're getting into like prehistory and all that stuff, and so they have to go through the Stone Age. Uh, but one of the first temples that was like recently, I think in the 90s, discovered in Turkey, um, people were assuming that uh, you uh, religion only developed after you had like the development of agriculture. And so you wouldn't have these complex religions and all this stuff until you had that. Um, but then they found in Turkey, and I, I, I just can't pronounce the, the name of the temple uh, that they discovered. But it threw that completely off because this was dated way before the invention of like agricultural and agriculture and people actually settling in something like a little like little village or something like that. And but yet they found this like beautiful display of like the all of the, you know, it's kind of like Stonehenge, but it has like all these depictions of the animals and it's not just like they just like to draw animals but there was a religious significance to it and people yeah. would would literally go on pilgrimage like from all over to this temple and to, to partake in this in this ritual which was a, a beautiful event yeah it does seem like you know maybe in the terminology of um luigi Giussani, like the the religious sense seems to be kind of the primary thing and attached to it always is this sort of this innate like need to create and to, and to find, and to find beauty. Yeah. Um, which is maybe a good transition to the way we should spend the rest of our time, which is how does all of this relate to hope? Which I, I think is just a wonderful move that that Pope Benedict makes in the document. Maybe you want to take it from there. Yeah, actually, a little bit uh, further down in that same same paragraph, in which he mentions Dostoevsky, he says, "Beauty pulls us up short, but in so doing, it reminds us of our final destiny. It sets us back on our path, fills us with new hope, gives us the courage to live to the full the unique gift of life." Yeah. So I, I, Can we I, back up one sentence, though? And just, yeah. I think we really ought to flag this. He, he quotes the painter Georges Braque as well, George Braque, who says, Art is meant to disturb, science reassures. What a line. I mean, like, we live in this world that just wants reassurance. Like, what does the data say? You know? And artists are like, not interested in that. Not interested, you know? And, I think the hope part is attached to that rather than the reassurance, which is so funny, right? Because I think people think if we just know, if we just know the information, then we can plan, then we can, we can be safe, you know, all these kinds of things. And, and I think Christian hope is really something totally different. Well, how is that connected to, because the beauty, like the beautiful moment is like, behold the man, yeah. uh, you know, this disfigured, like, savior and then upon the cross is like you know you truly have the unveiling of even the unveiling of the uh, even the the temple like curtain is <laughs> tears in two and it's almost as if the divine glory 
then pours itself out into the world. Literally, his body is open and outpours, you know, blood and water. But that that moment, that kind of act of torture, I mean, the guy being tortured to death is truly one that disturbs, but also at the same time, the most beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, what else? The I, I'm, Okay. So building on that, then we have all this art that is, you know, not related to religious subjects. We have lots of art that is like there, how many depictions have there been in the history of art since the crucifixion of the crucifixion? Right. Um, I mean, one of the most, one of the most maybe universally acknowledged most beautiful pieces of art ever created would be Michelangelo's Pietà, which is a woman holding her dead son. Yeah. Like what a, what a bizarre, what a bizarre thing that that is what we consider to be the highest expression of beauty, but it is. Yeah. Um, you can't separate the two. What was that Goethe line about the cross and the rose? Um, I can't, I can't remember it. I mean, Bishop Barron has, has mentioned it a couple of mm -hmm. times. Uh, but as if I, I don't know if he he saw the mixture of the two as just yeah, I, abhorrent. Um, yeah. But but it's interesting too that like you know these you know the beauty that is superficial that you know he he goes on and says beauty that is thrust upon us is illusory and deceitful, superficial and blinding, leaving the onlooker dazed. Um, but you know when you see people at prayer, they're oftentimes before the cross. Um, and it's just strange that the kind of the, the depths of beauty that is there in that moment, moment of absolute, like total suffering, um, partaking in that suffering um, is, is actually, it's, it's a participation in beauty as well. Yeah. I mean, there has to be some line about suffering and beauty. Um, like, to suffer is to actually be the one who can actually take in the beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess we're going down a different route with, with thinking about suffering. I, I invited it by bringing up the Pietà, but it reminds me of some of the stuff to come back to films. Like some of the, some of the things that I think are most beautiful about the best films are these, you know, expressions of people in agony to some degree you know i just recently wrote about tarkovsky's film the sacrifice which you've seen i know mm -hmm. and you know the whole thing is this the, the the worst case scenario comes to the world in some kind of you know nuclear holocaust or something and this man who's who's been an artist and an actor a critic um, not a man of faith he is driven to his knees in prayer and he he prays to the god he prays to God for people who don't know him because they haven't suffered enough. Like that's sort of like his, his way of like speaking to this God that he's been far from he's suffering and prays for people who don't know him because they haven't suffered as well. Um, I don't know in the time that remains what, so he ends with Pope Benedict ends with this encouragement to artists, whether they happen to be Christians or not, he says, through your art, you yourselves are to be heralds and witnesses of hope for humanity. How do you, how do you read that? Like, so we're talking about all these different, different people, you know, artists as heralds and witnesses of hope for humanity. Well, I mean, maybe connecting it to, um, to Dostoevsky's line about, um, because if there was, um, but without hope, he could no longer live because there would be no longer, uh, there, there would no longer be anything to do to the world. Um, mm -hmm. it just, it, it seems to me that like humans, like humans, humans need, beauty is almost like the, if you want to say it, the, the absolute, the, the point to which we're all like making our way, Right. And yeah. not to get too platonic here, um, but no, go ahead. But it just seems to me like you know when humans, uh, like sharks. I mean, if they. I don't know if this is true about sharks, um, but I've heard that the, you know if they stop swimming, I mean, they just die. 
Is that true or is that not? True? I don't, you know, that's one of those things. It's, it's good. Whether they do or not, we need the, we need the metaphor. So we'll keep, well, let's we'll just say, say like, okay, yeah. we've got these wings that are make which we're supposed to soar towards beauty. But if we're not flapping the wings, then we just, as, as, as humans, we just die. And so mm-hmm. inev- inevitably, you know, we, we have to have this. And so that's why the, the, the artists are the great, um, in a way they're doing a service to humanity yeah by making beautiful things i mean i have to say when i walked through the city of krakow and krakow was it was great because it was preserved and you do have some you do have some contemporary art there but which you know i i have to have somebody interpret it for me in order for me to find some meaning there but but okay but there's there is just art. Every, the whole city is kind of like a, a work of art. And every time I just walk through the city, that's all I need. I feel so infused. And like, like I mean, it, it just seems to me like, how can one possibly, and I see people who look a little bit depressed in the city, but I'm thinking, how look at all this beauty all around you. How could you possibly be depressed? I mean, mm-hmm. granted, it's it might be medical condition and you know all that yeah. stuff but but no, I, I know what you mean though yeah I, mean, I feel like this is the great service so i'm thinking you know why do people like you and me want to come to europe very often because we experience that we were renewed we in some ways our humanity is is in a way respected in these cities and through the beauty um yeah. And I don't know, that's, that just seems to me that's like the, the service that the, the, the artist can do for generations and generations. There's a, great, uh, there's a great scene in Fellini's film, Eight and a Half, where, so the Eight and a Half is a, is a wonderful film. It's on the Vatican film list. I've written about it. And, but it's a, I mean, it's a weird movie and it doesn't make perfect sense to everybody who watches it, but there's this, there's this great part. So the movie is about this director who's trying to make this film. He's this famous director, but he doesn't, he, he's sort of pretending like he's ready to make this movie because he's got backers and, you know, he's got actors cast and all this stuff, but he doesn't really have a script. He doesn't really know what movie it is that he's going to make. And so he's at this party and someone says to him, oh, what are you working on now? Another film without hope, probably, you know, like as if like, you know, these artists just, you know, don't they just sort of are all self-indulgent and, you know, whatever. And it, but it is it's like it, it, it's a kind of an indictment for him, like as a as a filmmaker who is trying he's actually trying eventually to make an anti-Catholic film. And it turns out to be impossible. You kind of you, you you will always end up making a pro-Catholic film if you try to make an anti-Catholic film. At least this seems to be what Fellini is saying. But but more importantly, in a sense, like you can't produce a good piece of art that's without hope. You kind of just can't do it. And so this is like the dilemma that the director is in in eight and a half. And I think you know that's coming through in this like encouragement that Pope Benedict is offering to artists here too. Like I mean, that's your task, artists. Like that's kind of what you do. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Completely, completely agree. That's uh, that's. Uh, is there anything else here in the the? Yeah, I don't know. Any further thoughts? Well, you know, just at the very end here, there's like he says that. Um, faith takes nothing away from your genius or your art. On the contrary, it exalts them and nourishes them. It encourages them to cross the threshold and to contemplate with fascination and emotion the ultimate and definitive goal, the sun that does not set, the sun that illumines this present moment and makes it beautiful. And then he gets into St. Augustine here um, when he reflects on man's ultimate destiny. Um, and, you know, he talks about how um, everything is the source uh, this is the reason a vision surpassing all earthly beauty. Okay. Um, we So he's talking about, we are to see a certain vision, a vision surpassing all earthly beauty, whether it be that of gold and silver, woods and fields, sea and sky, sun and moon or stars and angels. The reason is this, it is the source of all other beauty. Um I mean, it's just, yeah. just a, this is a wonderful, wonderful address. Um, and it's just too bad 
uh, not many people know about it. I mean, I did not know about this um, till a couple couple days ago. But he even he even he starts in one paragraph. He talks about even he even corrects theology with Balthazar's line as um, a beauty be, uh, being the first word and the last word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he quotes further down Simone Weil um, as saying that um, in beauty, in the presence of beauty, is the presence of God. Um, and then also, do you say, is it Hermann Hesse? Or Hesse, yeah. Yeah, Hesse. he quotes Hermann Hesse, yeah. Yeah, art means revealing God in everything that exists. Yeah, that's an interesting inclusion. We, uh, you know, Hesse was very fascinated by Eastern religions, and yeah. you know, I. But I, I think that's a really that's a really astute um, quote. That you know, it, it's astute of Pope Benedict to pull that quote out to say, like, you know, Christians aren't um, pantheists, right? But we are. I, I always I always worry that I'm getting this wrong. I think we are panentheists, right? We we sort of we we don't believe God is everything, but God's presence is in everything it, it, anyway our listeners may may correct us for heresy on that one but i'm yeah, pretty well, sure we're right but, uh, i know he's controversial but i got the big um fernand ulrich uh uh-huh. he's got a book that he's accused of 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 actually um yeah being a pantheist but uh balthazar well, like them you know he's probably yeah. in well, yeah, Pope Benedict ends with I, I, you. You already mentioned Augustine, but he he ends with this invitation for those who create to kind of in a sense he says carry this vision, you know, to kind of catch this vision, carry this vision, and so let's just pray, Bobby, for those who are following us that they uh, that they also catch catch this vision, that we catch it, and that we um, maybe we can do our part too. On that note, we probably better wrap up. But if you are enjoying what you're listening to. Our friends, we uh, we ask you to subscribe, to share this with a friend, to give us a, a good five star review, and to to stick with us. We are just getting started, and uh, we greatly appreciate your support. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin with Bobby Mixa. We are the Space Salvi Institute. God bless you.